Welcome back to Purple Rock. This week we're discussing the most boring episode of the season so far. I'm John. This is my co-host Andy. Andy, back me up here. Most boring episode, right? How could it be the most boring episode? We spent the entire first half talking about basically three people, Tyson, Vetus, and Tina. This was the episode that eliminated two of those three, so it had to be epic, right? Mm, let's let's go check the tape. No, it was not epic. Yeah, no, this is, uh, I mean, look, it happens. Sometimes pieces just need to be removed from the game board, so uh, we should have a nice quick show, and it was nice that we already pre-recorded half of this, so let's call it a night. Spoiler alert. But yeah, um, the big story of tonight was that it was a double boot episode, and I think some people thought that they just squeezed two together because it was so dull, and sometimes they would do that, but that wasn't really the reason they did that this time. No, it was, I mean, if you look at the numbers of episodes they have versus number of players in the game, we were just bound to have a double elimination episode, maybe even two, depending on if there had been evacuations or anything like that. But yeah, there's 14, I think, episodes, 15, and there's 20 castaways. Yeah, so I've actually broken it down with some like really awesome math that's going to excite people that didn't know there was going to be some math. People love math, Andy. It's, it's true. But actually, in this case... This was predestined to always be a double boot, and in fact, even if they had like just a rash of injuries and stuff, they probably would have just stretched something out later because of Redemption Island. They needed to reload Redemption Island back up with three people, and they didn't want to wait like two weeks to do it. So it turns out that even in the island itself, that that was only one day between Aris's elimination and Vetus's elimination. So this was always destined to be a double boot. I'm not sure they would have been able to stretch it out to two, even if these had been interesting eliminations. So we just kind of lucked out that the two votes that were just obvious were packed together and sent on their way. But uh, on that math, so what we were kind of getting at is that, yes, Survivor casts more people than they have episodes in which to eliminate them. And this wasn't always the case. Uh, Survivor used to be a 16-person show. Uh, it expanded out to 18 at times. But this is 20 people in this, and... You typically get that with uh, returning seasons, but also I think they just started to overcast the show by way of insurance. Yeah, basically, if you've got any quitters or uh, medical evacs in the bunch, you want to get some padding in there so you don't have those episodes where nobody gets voted out, which is a dramatic point of the episode. You want to keep the drama in the show. Yeah, so if you look at uh, traditionally, there's 20 people. Three people were eliminated, so that means you've got 17 vote-outs to divide amongst 14 episodes is what a typical Survivor season is. Now, this season is a little even worse, is that they have to actually, they have two people come back from Redemption Island, or at least, yeah, it might be the same person twice, but that makes it, so now that there's 19 vote-outs. So, they made it a little easier on themselves by eliminating three people in the first episode. So that gets you 16 and 13 episodes once you take out that first one. They typically eliminate about two people in the two-hour finale. So that brings you to 14, but now we're talking split out amongst 12 episodes. Colton quit. So that gave them a little bit of the buffer, but it still meant that they had 13 people and 12 episodes to do it. So that's why you get a double boot elimination. Oh, thank you for explaining that. You know us Americans are just not very good at math. Well, I would have used my hands and fingers like Brad Culpepper, but too many of them. But yeah, so that's why it was that way, and, you know, thank God, because while if they'd stretched this out, I'm sure they would have done a lot of work to try and make these interesting, but, like, you and I predicted it last week, and I'm not bragging about this one. I think anybody predicted it last week. After the fallout of Aris going home, the only choices to send people home were Vetus and Tina, and that's how it went. Yeah, the the only point of drama even in this episode, the the one interesting point, at least for me, was Tina and Tyson after that first boat. Because we'd mentioned before, earlier in the season, I think, how Tina had never really had the experience of being on the outside of an alliance. In All-Stars, she was on the outside of an alliance, but she was the first one out. So she didn't have any uh, of those lingering days on the island waiting to be voted out. So she sort of blew a fuse and went off and tried to allege that there wasn't going to be any jury votes for these people. Somehow she came up with the number five jury votes Mm -hmm. lost. Tina's not very good at counting either. She's clearly American as well. And then Tyson basically schools her. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a true highlight. Um, So basically the highlight of the episode was done before the credits had even rolled. But 
the way he just completely calmly shut her down when she was just building up to a righteous rage was just phenomenal. There's been a few, like, really great social talking moments that, you know, we've singled out. Obviously, Vetus has had a bunch, and whether, you know, we were overrating them or whatever, they, they were still there. Uh, I was a big fan of what Hayden did with Cad at Redemption Island, but what Tyson did, you know, that night tops them all, because he didn't even have to say that much, and Tina was already kind of like, eh, well, yeah, you're right. Well, not only that, he got everybody else to jump in and... and- do the rest of his dirty work for him. Like, okay, who had an alliance with Aris? Everybody raises their hands and jumps in. Yeah, Who's got two thumbs and had an alliance with Aris? This guy. Yeah. And that was great. And yeah, just the way he was like, well, you had already replaced us with Vetus and Katie. And Tina was like, no, we didn't. So yeah, that was great. And what was not just great watching it, and Tyson, you know, gave a pretty good interview that he's like, Survivor's broken my heart, and now I'm in love again. It's just, this is a different Tyson. It's almost disconcerting. This isn't the Tyson that I know and love. This is a much more calm and rational Tyson. Old Tyson would have gone, I mean, he would have done the Sierra move on her. The, not not this season Sierra, the previous season Sierra, when he was on in Token Teens, when he just dug into that girl and practically made her cry for several episodes in a row. Actually, it's funny, because we say uh, Tina's never been on this side of it, but you know, Tyson really hasn't had a lot of experience on being on the winning side of votes. I mean, he had it with uh, Brendan, and then, you know, Sierra, but that's not a great victory. Right. But then, yeah, he was kind of the first one taken out once uh, JT and Steven came around, and then in Heroes vs. Villains, he was the first domino to fall, so... This was kind of the first moment where he really felt like, you know, in a post-merge situation anyway, that, yes, I've taken, you know, hold of the game. Yeah, it's it's very weird to see him in a leadership role where it's not just him working behind the scenes, being a little more overt in that role. Yeah, because, I mean, basically Tyson was a personality. That's why he was cast. And, you know, right away... From the first moment, he was showing that. In fact, I kind of thought he was a bit of a jerk. But after a while, it's like, ah, well, he's a funny jerk. He's a lovable jerk. Yeah. And then, obviously, he's got terrific athleticism. But this is the first time that we've ever seen him be a leader, be a strategist, be a real threat. And uh, one thing is, you know, maybe just interesting to me, but this is my podcast, or at least half. It sounds like Tyson is one of Boston Rob's best, very best survivor friends outside of the game. So... Maybe some of that kind of brushed off on him. Yeah, that is something that we picked up from Twitter. And I'm not as big into the Boston Rob thing as you are. I mean, I like him well enough. But uh he's not a bad one to model your game after. And Tyson certainly has the same sort of personality that he could copy the Boston Rob playbook. I'm not even going to call it rule book. Yes, no. No, yeah. we, no BR rules. Right. Uh But Tyson just has that, you know, he can charm you. And he can kind of lead without making it too obvious that he's leading. He certainly has the traits that he can pull it off. Yeah, so, I mean, if, if you want to talk parallels, Boston Mariano in Marquesas was an obnoxious jerk. And he got voted out for it. Kind of like Tyson Apostle and to- Survivor Token Genes. So I think they both had to learn a bit of humility and learn when to tone things down. And that dealing with other people, while unfortunate, is a very big part of Survivor. And that's kind of something you get as a returning player. And um, I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but it's, I think, what Vetus is going to have to learn in future seasons as well. Oh, you're assuming Vetus is going to be back for future seasons. If Vetus is not back for future seasons, it only is because there are no future seasons of Survivor. It's been so obvious to me. I mean, I've been predicting it since very early in the season. We're getting this Vetus edit because they're bringing him back, and probably very soon. Expect a Vetus versus Malcolm season really, really soon. Well, I mean, like, yeah, if you don't bring him back, it's because you've decided to no longer do returning players, and obviously that's never going to happen again. Survivor needs them for advertising purposes only. And, yeah, it would be a dereliction of duty not to bring back a character this strong. Agreed. All right, so, um, yeah, we basically talked about the only real interesting moment of the episode, but um, there was kind of one other big moment that, you know, depending on what kind of fan you are of the show, it might float your boat or not, and that's the gross food challenge. Uh, How do you feel about gross food challenges? I, I don't really care, only because generally my wife 
asks me to fast forward through them. She's not a big fan of watching them. Uh, I like the general concept of them only because it gives someone who wouldn't necessarily have a chance at immunity normally, and yes, I'm talking about Cochrane, mm-hmm. gives that person a chance to actually get immunity. Yeah, I mean, I don't love or hate them. I mean, you know, I never watched Fear Factor, so it's not like something I'm into, but, you know, there isn't that many challenges that I'm all, ever all that excited about. This is another fine one. Uh, it's another way you have to, you know, power through and fight to win. Challenges like this also show how myopic some people can get. It's like, I'm just going to win every challenge. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to swallow that bug faster than other people. But last night, there was just kind of a few interesting things that happening during that challenge uh, that I'm going to talk about because apparently you fast-forwarded through them, right? Uh, well, not too quickly. I mostly tell my wife, hey, look that way. <laughs> but, yeah, it was with Jervis, and obviously they were building the story around, you know, Jervis is finally coming back to conquer his fears. You know? They couldn't do it around the swimming one so much, so they did it this one. But it was kind of funny because they, uh, they broke them off into two groups, and then it was a staged thing. And that first group had Vetus in it, and as soon as Vetus finished, and I believe he was the final person in his group of three, at least the way the edit went, they cut to Jervis, and he's like, ah. And that one made me laugh, because it's like, if Vetus didn't, you know, hadn't moved on then, you just know that Jervis is just not trying in the next round, right? He's totally going to mail it in, exactly. Which is great, maybe, you know, reveals a flaw of why you don't do this on a stage, or at least uh, two people at the same time. Uh, so then you get to the next round, and Jervis is, you know, he moves on. Competing against Vetus, Tyson is there. And you kind of see Jervis kind of shoot Tyson a look. And now some people have interpreted this like, you know, he was giving him a look like, come on, Tyson, pick it up. We actually have to do this. But my first read on it, and again, it was just kind of why I thought it was funny, Jervis's expression is, uh, you know, we could just vote out Tina or Katie. How about we just leave Vetus for this? <laughs> yeah, it's not that big a deal to keep Vetus for one more week. Come on. Yeah, but, you know, he fought through it. So, basically, I just I found those two moments funny. Otherwise, you know, people retching, uh, things moving. Apparently, we didn't get to see the whole thing. Vetus actually did move on one more round, and then they had to eat eyeballs. And that was uh, the three people that came to two. Speaking of Jervis, we actually got a voicemail this week, and it happens to be about Jervis, so I will play it now. This is Robot House, uh, just leaving a message. I thought I'd talk about which player I'm most interested in seeing how far they'll actually go this season. Uh, Gervais, who, after the first episode, seemed to not even be able to swim, kind of turned it around his alliance with Tyson's seems to work well where Tyson actually looks like he's in the power position to everyone else, and Gervais has kind of got a good laid-back strategy going. I actually think if I was picking who might actually win it, I would put now money on Gervais, whereas five or six weeks ago I would never have even thought he would get this far in the game. So, yeah, interesting to see what you guys think of his chances of how far he will get in the season. Uh, Look forward to listening to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Look at that. A voicemail from Down Under. Yeah, how weird. What an odd accent. I guess we'll never hear one of those again. No, I mean, this is a strictly North American podcast. So he does make a good point, though, and I actually wanted to discuss this anyway, so I'm kind of glad that we got that voicemail because I thought this was Jervis's best episode of the season and showed that he's actually a player in this game. He's not just destined to be a GOAT. He clearly has done some research. He's watched some seasons and learned what makes a good player. He's actually putting some thought into his moves. Yeah, no, Jervis is a gamer, at least, you know, interview-wise, and, you know, maybe he's not getting out there in front doing that, but, you know, that's a perfectly legitimate strategy. I've been impressed. I've been impressed by the things you've said. Uh, You and I had some fun at his expense in the first episode of this, but... Yeah, he was the right guy to bring back. He has demonstrated a very good understanding of the game. And um, kind of getting to Robot House's point, oh, I'd love to see him go all the way. If he keeps doing this, give me more Jervis. Give me a wise old sage Jervis. It was definitely unexpected. I did think probably one of his best moments of the episode and probably of the season was just basically laying it out how Monica is just unpredictable and unpredictable is the worst thing you can possibly be when you're in an alliance with someone 
just because she threw a vote when they had a plan to where to put the votes and she didn't follow it. So what's to say that later on in the season, she's going to be a reliable vote and Jervis correctly identified that in his confessional and said, listen, I, this is not someone I can stick around with. So I can't imagine she's long for this show. And often being unpredictable is worse than being in opposition. Sometimes you need to cut out those wild cards even before you need to cut out somebody that's you know, actively working against you because that other person you can at least anticipate. You know what their deal is. You could probably isolate them. But a wild card can just muck up your plans. Yeah, we're going to have to do some historical segment on that at some point, the, the all-time wild card players. Yeah, well, maybe Monica will get added to that list, but I kind of don't think so. Yeah, I don't think she makes the cut. Brief historical aside, Jervis's turnaround from, you know, real-world Jervis in season one to, you know, now breaking down strategy and even points that you think would have bothered Tyson more because it was his neck on the line and, of course, screwing up a split vote was, you know, a signature Tyson move. Is this the most stunning returning player change that you've ever seen? Or? Ooh, that's yet another topic that would be a great segment for a historical discussion somewhere along the line. And maybe we'll put a pin on that for now and just wait and see. But I think he's in the discussion. I, I think he would crack the discussion. I'd have to go back and uh, look at some previous returnees. I will say that Coach's third time was remarkably different for me. He was still bizarre, mm-hmm. but he did play the game much better. And we'll, we'll save that one for later. I, like I said, I like that one as a future topic. Yeah, so... um. Yeah, I'd be happy to see Jervis. Obviously, I think we're both on uh, Team Tyson to various degrees. You're the captain of the team, and, you know, I'm... I am steering the Tyson ship. Yeah, and I'm just along for the ride a bit. Like, I'd love to see, you know, the way he's playing now, uh, go for it. Uh, but, you know, selfishly, obviously, the player I'm most interested in seeing go all the way is Sierra. Oh, yeah, that that's right. She's She's in this game, right? Yeah, she's in this game, and she's in it to win it. To piss off everybody who's enjoying the show so far. It's like, ah, this is an abomination of a season because she won. Yeah, she's not going to win. Probably not, no. But she could. And I'm saying that there, it is a possibility. Unlike Monica, who um, we've seen a few people talk in episodes leading up. Cat and a little bit even Colton and then uh, Tyson about, you know, kind of her being annoying. And I wasn't giving it too much credence. I gave it a little bit more to Tyson because obviously if, you know, the feature player is saying it, that's something. When Kat was saying it, I was almost thinking it was just Kat's problem. But after tonight, no, uh, Monica's way annoying, isn't she? Yeah, see, I actually would have used different rationale. If Tyson's saying you're annoying, that's that's not that big of a deal. I kind of feel like Tyson is annoyed by 80% of humanity. And Kat saying you're annoying, I'm not even entirely sure that Kat would necessarily grasp what annoying means, even after several reads of the dictionary definition. Colton saying you're annoying, uh, again. That's almost a, it's almost a validation of your character, really. Yeah, if, if anything, that's a point in your favor if Colton dislikes you. So I don't know that I would have been taking those opinions at face value, but after seeing this episode, I can see how, at least to the editors, who are, or the producers and editors, who are the ones who determine what we see, she was kind of annoying. Yeah, so she wins immunity and then is still incredibly paranoid and won't stop talking about it. How did you uh, interpret that sequence? Yeah, this was something that stuck out to me in this episode because as I was watching, they show her laying down and saying, oh, I was, I'm worried that everyone's scheming to vote me out. But I don't know if it was the edit or if she's just insane and or not very aware of what immunity means because she had immunity at that point. It it felt like they just crammed that scene in from sometime in the future where she doesn't have immunity. Yeah, so what she was saying, and she kind of said it once, but, you know, amongst her nervous nattering is that because she won immunity, she was thinking that because she won immunity, people were now scrambling in a way that they wouldn't have scrambled if she had won immunity, thus making her think that she was the next to go. Which makes slightly more sense. I mean, it's still crazy, but it does make more sense. And here's the thing, like, if that was true, then, you know, stop talking about it and do something. Get people to like you instead of harping on it. But no, who was scrambling, Monica? The people who were about to be voted out were scrambling. I don't know, maybe she just wasn't clued into what, like, the guys were doing in the, you know, Chase Tina sequence, but... 
No, I mean, it was garden variety scrambling, and nobody was talking about you. Until you started doing the crazy stuff you did this episode, in which case, yeah, everyone's talking about you. Right. Once you start making yourself the paranoid wacko who can't be trusted, then people are going to start talking about you. Yeah, so I think what she did was quite possibly move herself up in the boot order. I think last week I was fairly confident that she could have been final three plans of you know, Tyson and Jervis, and now she could be going home very soon. Yeah, I had the same thought that she was the third wheel in that Tyson and Jervis alliance, and I think that wheel's going to come off before we get to the final three. All right, so we did have a couple people voted out, like we discussed. So instead of breaking down each one, because there really wasn't a lot to talk about, we predicted it last week, I figured we'd give this spot to just give final thoughts on Vetus and Tina. Yeah, we can't give ourselves too much credit for this because it was fairly obvious that these were the two that were going to be going home. Of course they were the right moves. That's why we predicted it last week. Yeah, I mean, Vetus was the absolutely, like, it had to happen. You can't mess around here because, look, what was the very next challenge? It was, you know, calm, patience, mental stamina, uh, you know, balance. Yeah, you got to figure the yoga guy is going to do well at that. Yeah, and there are players like that, that if you just think, oh, you know what, let's, uh, we'll, we'll just wait. Well, I don't want to eat the grubs today. We can take out Venus next time that, you know, work their way up uh, and have even won the game. I don't think that was going to happen in this scenario because he would have remained a target throughout. But, you know, it's happened with Danny Boatwright. It's happened with Chris Dotry. So Venus especially, they needed to take care of business. I thought it was a little interesting that Katie was the other choice. But, you know, I think I've kind of puzzled that one out as other people have talked about on the boards. Uh, the fact that she won the very next immunity kind of proves that, yeah, maybe she was the bigger threat. Why do you think that Katie was kind of the second choice there? Yeah, pretty much the same logic, but I think it was important for them, like you said, to get Vetus out now because Vetus himself knew, if I could just stay around for one more vote, there's a chance, and the longer you stick around, the better your chances get that you're going to find a crack. Yeah, don't let players hang around. Like, that's kind of what undid them in Heroes vs. Villains. They figured we could always get rid of Poverty later, so they didn't vote her out the first time, and then her and Russell was able to split the middle, so... Uh, when you get the chance, strike, and yeah, so Vetus was that. And then the next one, I mean, it could have been T- Katie if she hadn't won, but I think Tina's, Tina's the right move there. She's not going to help anyone. She's just going to be a bit annoying. And she might have been able to also expose some cracks, especially if you factor in what Vetus was talking about in the final Tribal Council was the potential female alliance. Right, and I think Tyson was clued into that one as well. I think Tyson's actually analyzing this pretty well. The one thing I do worry about and we're kind of going to get into some predictions and stuff here Tyson's going to have to sniff out which sort of alliances could make him end up in the minority and then avoid those basically you could have the family members aligning Mm -hmm. you could have the women aligning Mm -hmm. I think those are the two major threats to Tyson at this point yeah I think those are the groups basically there's not many other groups left but kind of any grouping of people that isn't Tyson is a threat to Tyson because he's the biggest threat. Lucky for him, he's got an idol that nobody knows about. Which he keeps teasing that he's going to reveal. Don't do it, Tyson. Yeah, well, I mean, this episode, I could I could see why I was talking about it. Because the one way that teams like uh, with low numbers can break a solid alliance is messing up that vote split. Because, yeah, as he knows, this is exactly what happened to him. So sometimes it'd be nice just not to do the vote split. But the only way he could really tell people, hey, 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 don't worry about this. I have the idol. But the risk there outweighs the reward. I do wonder if he actually has told a couple people about it, and that's why they didn't split the vote the second time around. Well, I think the second time, for one, it would just been too fracturous to the alliance to make the split. It would be showing your hand to Monica and then having her hang around. The other reason is I think you could probably easily just say, if Tina had an idol, she would have played it yesterday and she didn't have time we followed her i had you know he and his little merry band did his you know following around even though he didn't have to it's a fun little piece of misdirection maybe not quite on the level of you know coach taking everybody out to find the idol you already had but it was right up there i i actually enjoyed just kind of a playful sense all the tina and the idol bits yeah yeah it was cute i like tina she's a she's a good survivor yeah and in the end where you know she's out she knows it That little bit where she's kind of looking in her bag and then, ah, shucks, that was fun. That was cute. Good for her. 
that's a total Tina move. That's why people love her, and that's why she got the million the first time she played. So what's next? So we had the merge, mm-hmm. and we found which way the game broke. Then we you know, had a couple of fodders, you know, victims of being on the wrong side. But now we have to decide how the game is going to go from here. So the easy move would just be to stay the course, one more vote, and vote out Katie, right? Right, and I think that's actually going to end up being the move. I think after that is where it gets interesting. Do you do Laura M., or do you go for Monica at that point? I think probably, yeah, if we're laying odds, most likely it's Katie, and we'll do predictions next. But because it's Katie, a kind of a non-threat in the game, you can see that maybe this is the opportunity to do something either to just take somebody else that's more threatening than Katie, that's kind of on the outskirts of the alliance, or maybe it's time for the group to make the move against the threats. Typically, that's the sort of thing that happens in odd numbers when alliances break against each other. But if you're on that other side, Katie is probably a better asset to you than Monica is. Agreed, but I don't think that the people on the outside, A, know they're on the outside, and B, would have enough numbers even with adding Katie to take out Tyson or Jervis or anybody else in that main alliance. So that's kind of the next thing. Like, when when's the threat going to happen against Tyson? And they have numbers because... Every one of them isn't Tyson, right? I mean, there's eight people and seven people aren't Tyson. Okay, so if we want Jervis's true blue to the end, that's six on two. Like, I don't think it would be a a giant leap. And again, maybe these people aren't going to do it. The edit suggests that they might not, but that's the move. Those six people should be like, all right, it's time to move against Tyson. We got rid of ours. We got rid of Vetus. He got rid of winner Tina. One of us should win, not one of them. But at the same time... If they feel like they've got a 6-2 to two advantage over Tyson and Jervis, what's the rush? You're still going to have an advantage when you've only got three. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, so take care of business, get rid of Katie. Or, you know, to get rid of Monica, maybe Jervis is kind of itching to do it. And if you're Hayden, let's just, let's let's make Hayden the, the prime mover on the other side. I'm not suggesting he is or anybody will be. But if you're Hayden, you have no relationship with Monica. You have a previous relationship with Katie. As you say, you could wait, but waiting could be dangerous. They don't know it, but it'll be incredibly dangerous. At a certain point, Tyson will just play that idol just because he's run out of opportunities to do so. But even just, you know, he's going to win some individual immunities, don't you think? I would hope so. So is it the time to take out Tyson? I'm not saying that, you know, you want it to happen or that it will happen, but is it now or do you wait one vote? Logically, it's easier to do it when there's seven, but... Knowing that he has the idol, which they don't, supposedly, the time to do it would be when he's not expecting it. Cause you gotta figure he's gonna be on guard at seven and five, mm-hmm. cause those would be the times to strike. So, if you wanna catch him off guard, do it at eight or six left. So yeah, that's how the second half could shake up. And that's basically how Tyson, who's looking to get a very good winner's edit, possibly not win, is that he becomes the top alpha dog that the other people kinda revolt against. But uh, the other thing that the other thing that's out there, if you trust the previews, is it looks like Laura M might be finding herself higher on the boot list than you would expect. What did you make of that? Yes, Sierra was in the preview, and I remembered. Oh, Sierra's on this show. I'm gonna say that every week when she gets a confessional or, or a preview. So basically, you've said it every week. It's getting pretty funny so far. The pr- basically, I've said it every week because she gets a confessional every week. Do you think that's all legitimate? Is she voting out her mom next week? Not next week, but I think it will happen though. So, yeah, I think what's happening there is she's floating the idea that she is loyal to the alliance that she came in with, that she's not one of these threatening duos because, you know, they're the only loved one couple left. But, yeah, I think that's a smokescreen. I don't think that's what's happening next week. In fact, one thing as, you know, the big Sierra backer, I almost worry that this makes her a little dangerous. Like, you go to Tyson with that, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm totally ready to flip on my mom. And maybe that kind of sets off an alert signal to Tyson, like, oh, Sierra might be actually a bit of a player instead of the, you know, nothing that I've been taking her as. Maybe you just vote her out earlier than, you know, she would have otherwise. Yeah, but then you don't necessarily know, because, again, this is just a teaser preview. There could have been a scene of Jervis saying before that, hey, we might have to get rid of your mom, and then she's, it's not really her idea that she's bringing to Tyson. So, yeah, you can't base too much on those previews. No, I mean, usually you go the opposite way. 
I guess the one thing I will say is this season the previews have been a little bit more on the up and up. I mean, they showed Will, Ty- Will Colton quit, and he quit. They show Tyson's making a move on ours, and he was. So, like, maybe the the preview makers didn't get the memo that they weren't actually supposed to tell us what was going to happen. <laughs> they got a new guy in the preview edit booth this season. Yeah, he's like, what? I'm just showing what happened. The next episode's a merge, so I'm going to show a merge. I'm like, what's, what's wrong with you? Uh, so, yeah, we've kind of puzzled out a bit of what could happen, but all right, it's time to... We'll put our uh, money where our mouth is. What's happening next week? So let's start with the fun part. Who's leaving Redemption Island? Uh, it's hard to imagine it's not going to be Tina. Yeah, it's Tina. Yeah, it's Tina. Obviously, you know, there's always different kind of challenges, and some of them are just basically flukes, but no, it's Tina. Well, here's what I wonder, though. Because previously we'd gotten idle clues out of those challenges, do you think there's still idle clues that they'd be giving out? I kind of don't see why not. I mean, it's almost kind of built in. They're committed to three-person challenges. They need to create an enticement for winning. Now, obviously, it has not been an enticement for winning, other than if you finish first, it means you definitely won't finish last. But they didn't know that when they set the season up. I think they thought that this was really going to be a thing. I guess the flip side argument, though, is in a pre-merge situation, you're more likely to have somebody you'd want to give an idle clue to. That's what I was going to get to is... If you got voted out with, you know, seven left, what if it was six against you? You don't want to give any of those people an idle clue. Except in this new world where getting an idle clue is a affront to you as a person. Um, so, yeah, let's – who knows? But if – what should they do? Uh, what would happen if uh, a Baskowski's brother gets an idle clue? What, is, what should he do with it? Who, who does he have to give it to? Oof. I I guess in theory you give it to Katie. Yeah, I think that's the play for any three of them. At this point, give it to Katie. It's the lifeline that they were ignoring forever is the one they need now. So. Yeah, that's the thing is, and, and that kind of goes into the whole Tina immunity idol search last night. They know you're searching for it. Just search for it. Who cares if they see that you find it? Which in this case, she obviously couldn't have. But again, the same thing. We know the target's going to be on Katie's back. Just take the idle clue and go look for it. Yeah, and just dig faster than they did, you know? Right. Who cares? Take the clue. Use it. The time for subterfuge is over. It's about finding idols now. Right. The knife is this close. Um, so, yeah, so we talked about the stuff that we don't really care about. Um, who do we think is getting voted out? And then, so what we'll do from here on out is pick our top choice and then second choice if that person wins immunity. Well, the obvious one here is Katie, mm-hmm. like we said earlier. I think as a backup, I think they would actually go on Monica now. The only thing that makes me think they wouldn't go after Monica is that there's not a ton of returning players left, and I think that's one of the things that Tyson and Dervis are going to be wary of having happen. If, if They don't want to get three returning players left in the game against a whole bunch of family members because at some point, those family members might start colluding and you're gone. Yeah, and I almost wonder if that's there's been kind of a quid pro quo going, quid pro quo. Uh, going on here is that we'll do one of ours and then you do one of yours. So ours was the first target, and then the next one was Vetus or Katie. Then it was Tina, so the next one is going to be you know, a loved one. It could be a way that, you know, the uneasy balance between uh, Tyson and Jervis and, you know, Caleb and Hayden. Not that it's much of a balance from our perspective. And if you're Tyson, KD is actually dangerous to you. If you're Hayden, Sierra, or Caleb, she's a potential asset. But I think, yeah, they'll just probably vote out KD. That's the number one choice. And I think the backup, I mean, it's tempting to say Monica, but I think that all she did there, I think it'll blow over and people will realize that Monica's somebody you want to stay in the game. So I think Laura M is actually the backup. I think maybe there is something to what we're seeing. See, and I do wonder if they did have that thought of, wait, we don't want to get rid of a returning player. We want to take out one of the family members. Hey, guess who my first target would be among the family members? If Katie is off the board. My target would be Hayden. Oh, really? See, I would go Sierra. Sierra's not winning anything. It doesn't matter that she's not winning anything. She's got her mom in there with her. I would break up that duo. See, I think Laura M. isn't a returning player at this point for 
I mean, for the purposes of alliance building and connections, I think Laura M is more potentially dangerous to Jervis and uh, Tyson is the other guy than a potential asset. So I don't think there's anything saved there. I'm not even sure Jervis and Tyson really ever had much of a relationship with her. And honestly, this is just wild speculation because let's be honest, it's Katie going home next week. Okay, so uh, we're going to switch gears here, and welcome to the show, a guest. Uh, I'll just say right up front now that we're recording this interview a week ahead, so if we're talking about a bunch of people that today, yesterday's episode tells us no longer matters, that's why. Continuing our tradition, we're bringing somebody in from the AV Club message boards where John and I met. Uh, she goes by the name of Something Quirky which you will not be shocked to learn is not her actual name. So uh, welcome to the show, Michelle. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You guys might have picked up on something here. She does have what sounds like, I think that's a Canadian accent. Andy, help me out. It's similar. Uh, we both, at one point anyway, had Queen the Queen on our money. I'm not sure if they still do. Yep, we did. But no, uh, one of our big motivations is we wanted to show how international this podcast was by welcoming one of our Australian friends to the show. Aw. One of two. <laughs> I think there's three. Is there? I don't know. We're so big time in Australia. They love us in Australia. Take that, Survivor Oz. But, uh, yeah, we want to talk about uh, the same thing we always want to talk about is um, why do you watch Survivor, Michelle? What do you like about it? I have the lamest story for starting watching it ever. Obviously, I knew it existed and I saw bits and pieces, but I started watching when the brother of one of my favorite musicians was a contestant. Was it Billy Garcia? No, Survivor Micronesia, Jason Siska, his brother's Adam Siska, who used to be in the band The Academy is and is now in the band Say Anything. Huh. I didn't know that. But, you know, I honestly don't really know much about Jason other than he has a, struggles with the ability of discerning sticks from idols. <laughs> I can't even use the most famous quote from that season because this is a G-rated podcast, Andy. <laughs> That's right. And I, when you were saying that, when you were talking about he was a friend of a person in a band, all I could really think about was Charlie's band from Lost. And now, of course, I realized that they weren't Australian. Were they not? No, English, which I know, you're American, we're all the same to you, we get it. Everybody with an accent, just, it all sounds the same to me. Well, it's kind of fair confusing the British with the Australians, but no, we're our own country. Yeah, different hemisphere and everything. So, uh, Micronesia is when you started watching Survivor? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen like episodes from previous ones, but it wasn't until Micronesia that I started watching the whole thing. So does that mean you haven't seen Survivor Australia? I have not seen Survivor Australia. So Tina Wesson is not a national hero in your country? Surprisingly not. That's not how national heroism works? Somebody was on a show with the title of your country and the name? Not really, no. We do like our reality show winners, but no. no. Survivor didn't involve singing. That's true, and you don't have Simon Cowell on Survivor Australia, I'm assuming. He's starting to get it, Britain. Australia, different places. <laughs> I'm at least getting closer accent-wise. So, uh, obviously, John and I are huge Survivor dorks um, because we're doing this currently as we speak. Uh, well, how would you rate your fandom? Are you kind of like a casual fan or you watch every week and think about it? Well, I comment regularly on a TV review website, so... One of us. <laughs> It does make you a little nerdier than the, the average, I would say. That's, I mean, it, that certainly adds to it. I suppose I wouldn't be as much of a fan if, I, if there wasn't that aspect to it. That's right. You wouldn't be dedicating parts of your Saturday to talk to us. So and we're, we're definitely happy that you're doing that, even though it still just blows our mind that it's sunlight where you are right now. Exactly. I got up in the morning for you. Yeah, and meanwhile, I'm staying up past my bedtime for this. Aw. So uh, how do you think the season's going so far, Michelle? I think it's going better than, well, better than I expected it to. One, one thing we didn't cover, uh, have you seen every season since Micronesia? Were you hooked after Micronesia and you just kept watching since then? Basically, yeah, I've seen every episode since the first one of Micronesia. But once you see Jason, you pretty much could never turn this show off, right? <laughs> oh, I know, if only more contestants were like him, oh. I know, you must have been so disappointed when they finally brought somebody back and it was freaking Eric. I know, right? My favorite from fans was favorites. 
Although to you, that show could have just been called Fans versus Fans. It really wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I still knew who they... Well, I knew who some of them were. Right, so obviously you'd heard of, you know, Kim and Eliza. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just picking out the most least famous people that were on that season. Was Kim on that season? No, it wasn't Kim. Amy was who I was talking about. We'll edit out that failed joke. <laughs> yes, we will. Well, Amy, I found out more about her by Googling her, and that was interesting. Yeah, if you do a nice Google image search with your moder- your settings off, you get to see more of Amy than you thought. Don't do an Amy Google search while you're at work, by the way. <laughs> Depends where you work. Well, I suppose it does. But let's just say there are a lot of revealing pictures of Amy on the Internet. Yes, there are. So before we even get to the talk about this season so far, now that I know that you've seen every season since Micronesia, who who would you say is your favorite player? I was actually thinking about this question in preparation, and I don't know. I, I, I'll admit I love Eric, but he's not the best player. And I also have a, I have a soft spot for JT as well. Apparently, so did everyone in Tokyo teens. <laughs> and of course, you can't quite go past Kim, because you know girl power and whatnot. Sure, at least someone's mentioning a woman that they like as a favorite. Hey, I will say loud and proud anywhere. Kim is one of my absolute favorite players of this game, and she probably always will be. Likewise, but I, I think generally Kim gets the uh, shaft from rankings. Well, I think you know, what's happened is, you know, Kim Spradlin's kind of become the hipster survivor of choice, right? So the masses, they have, the, you know, their Russells, their Robs, and again, guilty, I'm a big Rob fan. But, like, Kim's that way, you know, way of saying that, you know, you kind of like Velvet Underground instead of the Beatles. You're losing me with your pop culture <laughs> references. The, the, the Beatles, you say? Yes. Never heard of them. They're Australian, right? Oh, is that why they're Australian? <laughs> they have those funny accents. Okay, so now that we've covered who your favorite player is, who would you say is your least favorite? And I, I imagine you probably have several that are competing for this title. Oh, no, Colton wins it pretty easily. Oh, it's not even a contest. It's Colton all the way. All the way. So is that why this season is uh, surprising you and the fact that you like it because, you know, you expected to hate it because Colton was on it? Well, initially I was, when they first suggested he was going to be on it, I was like, crap, I can't watch this. But there wasn't wasn't enough of him to annoy me that much. I kind of almost forgot that he was on this season. Yeah, like he he had his episode or two and then... That was that, so it wasn't like they were devoting, you know, it wasn't like a Philip and Brandon Hurt scenario where he was the main story. Yeah, like, can you imagine if Colton was this season's Philip? Ugh. Uh, so, now that we know that Colton's your least favorite, what's your opinion on Caleb, then? I like him. I don't like Colton, and I feel, but I feel it's a bit weird to be like, Caleb's such a great guy, you know, what does he see in him? Which, yes, I think that, but, yeah, each to their own. Caleb's playing a very, he's playing a good game. He's not making moves unless he has to, and they were the right moves to make. Yeah, and I, I think I've been one of the people who have said, what does Caleb see in Colton? But uh, I shouldn't be throwing stones, because I've made some poor dating decisions in my life, too. Yes, but they have moved beyond dating. And one thing is, uh, you know, I'm willing to accept that Colton, the person, is different than Colton, the you know reality show personality. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. You're not willing to go that far. <laughs> There's at least a slim chance. <laughs> the door is open that it could happen. There's a, there's a very small chance. But I like I like how Caleb deals with him. Like he just kind of ignores him, not ignores him, but just lets him do his thing and doesn't take part. I mean, it would be good if it was like, no, shut up, you're a bad person. But that wouldn't be a very good relationship. Actually, ignoring is the way to go. That that is how all solid relationship foundations are built. Especially when he quit, he kind of treated him not like a child, but there was a very there was a very parent-child-like relationship there. Nothing sexier than that. I know, it sounds so creepy. I I don't need to talk any more about that relationship. So anyway, that actually does lead into your feelings about this season, since both of those people we're discussing are on this season. What do, what do you think about this season so far? And again, for those of you who aren't aware, we've only seen up to the merge episode at this point when we're recording this. Okay. It's, as I said before, it's not as bad as, like, when you hear the blood versus water and the Redemption Island and the twist and the twist and the other twist, you know, it sounded a lot more complex and frustrating than it's actually been. Yeah, and I think the lesson there is, 
the show can do all the twists and themes and everything that they want to do. But as long as they've got a good cast, it'll be alright. Like, a good casting can overcome everything else, and bad casting cannot overcome anything. No, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, at least there's no one now that Colton's gone, there's no one that you need to really hate. I mean, there was Culpepper, but he had... He had it, the entertainment value. He wasn't just. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, there's nothing, there's nobody on the show that I dislike right now, and I think that might be true for John, other than his completely irrational hatred of Sierra. <laughs> My hatred of Sierra is really just fueled by trolling you. That's that's really. I have nothing against her. She seems harmless. Yeah, I was actually thinking today that Sierra's kind of been a gift to us because we agree far too often on far too many things. So at least it lets us mix it up a bit every once in a while. And also, it'll be a nice thing for me to hold over you when she triumphantly wins. If she beats Tyson, I may give up on this show forever. Oh no. You hear that, Michelle? You might need to be my podcast partner. Can we get that in writing somewhere? Someone's making a move on my spot already. (laughs) That's right. Every Saturday now, you're booked up. I feel like Sierra deserves more credit. Hey, preach it. Okay, well, since since Andy always makes the case and I never see it, you make the case for Sierra. What am I missing? Look at the other people that have played this game that have kind of filled her, her casting stereotype, if you'd like. That you compare her to them and she blows most of them out of the water just because she does. She has a social game, she has strategy, she doesn't over-strategize, but she's not stupid. I mean, challenge prowess, yeah, that's not great but she's suave enough about the game to get through. And here's where I deliver the knockout punch. Do you want to know her uh, most recent comp there, John? Tell me. Laura from last season, who I believe you had on your fantasy team and you were pulling for her. Am I correct in that assumption? I believe I did have Laura last season. You're so correct. that Laura was useless. She couldn't even untie knots or unlock locks, and she was taken out for it. Sierra is equally useless. She's still in the game. Nobody actually really wants to vote her out. I think uh, she's done enough in the social game to merit her spot. And I take that back. I didn't have Laura last season. I had Hope, who was even more useless and pretty. (laughs) There you go. So before, uh, I was talking about how it doesn't matter the theme, and they could screw up the theme or have silly themes or great themes. If they don't have good casting, it all goes kaput. But that kind of wanted to lead me into this week's historical discussion. This is a theme season. In fact, this is a double theme season. So we have the theme of, obviously, loved ones versus loved ones. There's also returnees versus non-returnees. The show has done many different iterations. Uh, it's kind of one of the ways it keeps itself fresh is various theme seasons. And um, I just put the question to you, Michelle, to start off as our guest. Do you have a favorite theme season that the show has done in the time that you've been watching? Well, I'm I'm partial towards fans' best favorites. There's been obviously I started on a fans' best favorite season, mm-hmm. and that's stayed one of my favorite seasons. And the second one, well, it was done well in the kind of post-merge time period. So yeah, so you're not a big Brandon Hans fan. What is what you're saying? No. See, the the thing that separates him from Colton though is that some of his behavior, I don't think he's entirely choosing to do it. Yeah, there's something a little more calculated about what Colton's doing, and there's nothing calculated about what Brandon's does, no matter how much he tries to pretend that it was his plan all along. The dude just ain't right. So what do you like about the fans versus favorites season? Is it the the contrast? Is it just the chance to see uh, returnees? See, the contrast is an interesting thing because it's it's good in the sense that you can you get to see people that have played before and who know how to play and can strategize well enough with knowing what's happened in the past, whereas the favorites just kind of jump into things and they make you know, big moves too quickly and they don't know what to do. Uh, that side of it's interesting, but then you've got the flip side where the favorites have played before and in both cases they've dominated the early challenges and that just gets boring. Yeah. Which it forces the favorites to learn how to strategize and uh, everything like that, but... They're, they're generally not as good at it. Yeah, and I mean, I personally, uh, to jump a bit to my answer, is I prefer full-on All-Star seasons because sometimes it's been embarrassing. I think this season's actually been a bit of an exception. Even though the non, like the non-returnees were losing a lot, they were still very interesting and had good things to do for the game. But I guess one benefit of the fans versus favorites is uh, those favorites that you kind of want to see for a while, they don't go home right away. So that's nice. You don't see, like, Rob C. getting taken out in, like, episode four or whatever. So Yeah, you get excited about seeing these people back, and you know that 
with some exceptions, they're not going to just go straight away again. Mm-hmm. I mean, the flip side is, of course, you get lots of brand, a lot more Brandon and Philip than maybe in a regular season. Uh, so how about yourself, John? Do you have a favorite theme that the show has done, either a recurring theme that, that's the kind of season you like, or is there a very specific theme that happened in the past that you really enjoyed? I have a very specific theme that happened in the past. Honestly, it wasn't even necessarily the theme, but I'm going to refer to it the same way that our friend Emma refers to it. Survivor Race Wars. Oh, you took mine! Also known <laughs> as Survivor Cook Islands. Each of the tribes were swapped or uh, divided by race. You had four in each tribe, which... All right, was it five? I think tribe? it was five. It was five. You're right. Uh, so it was five in each tribe, and I remember the season so fondly, partly because of the casting. It wasn't so much the gimmick that made it work so well, but it was a really well-cast season, which, I mean, you just look at the people they brought back from that show, which is a whole lot of white people and Aussies. Yeah, uh, seriously, dude, you got it's like you're reading my mind. This is the second podcast in a row that you've taken my idea for the exact same reasons. I thought I was going to be all slick by saying I like the one that everybody thinks was a disaster when they you know, set up race wars. Because even when they announced it, you, know, you kind of slap your head like, this is what you're going to market around? But the flip side is it forced them to finally diversify their cast. And it resulted in a bunch of people that hadn't been playing that game so far, not just racially, but different types. And it's one of my favorite seasons of all time. So since you took that one from me, uh, yeah, I'll just go straight up all-star seasons. I, I, I like them. I mean, obviously, we can't have them all the time because, I mean, fundamentally, it wouldn't work. We need to create new all-stars. But I'm all for it. Bring them back. I like that we don't waste time getting to know people. I like that they hit the ground running strategy-wise. And a lot of the most memorable strategy things have been because, you know, All-Stars had to take out other All-Stars. Well, I think Jeff Probst might agree with you because, uh, from what I hear, Malcolm was invited to this season and, honestly, will probably have an open invitation to all future seasons. Yeah, they just got to find the right theme. Uh, how do you feel about uh, full-on All-Star seasons? You've seen Heroes versus Villains, right, Michelle? Yeah. I like them for the reasons that you've said where they, they can just hit the ground running and they know what they're doing. We know more about them, so we can judge, like, does the have they changed? Are they the same? You know, are they becoming better players, or have they just no idea how to play this game? Yeah, and usually there's a nice mix. You know, sometimes the best all-star players were people who are like you couldn't really understand why they brought them back. Like Rob Mariano was right at the merge, voted out. Uh, Amber was, you know, just kind of a pretty girl who I think did the cover of Stuff magazine. Parvati was the foxy boxer, but they come back and they're pretty awesome. And then the flip side is some of them come back with these swelled heads and look very, very stupid. Coach. <clears throat> Coach the second time, or a lot of the heroes, like, wow, they did not cover themselves in glory. Like, James was insufferable. Uh, Rupert wasn't the same. Yeah, the hero side is not disappointing, but especially considering how the villains just dominated the first part of the city. The series. Well, that was why Jeff Probst lost his man crush on Colby, because Colby couldn't rally that hero's tribe. Come on, Donaldson, pick it up! Pour out a little liquor for the uh, Probst-slash-Donaldson relationshipers. Yeah, and then I guess another contender, uh, just briefly, is um, in terms of recurring themes, is man versus women seasons. Again, it just kind of allows for greater diversity, in that women are actually allowed to do the things that they often socially can't in a mixed tribe. So... I don't mind seeing that every once in a while. I like it because I find that women alliances, when they stick together, there seems to be more of them that are more effective than kind of your bro alliances. Mm-hmm. God, I'm sorry I used that word. <laughs> then your all-male alliances. I'm not being like, yeah, women rock and, you know, playing that card just because I'm female. But when you have the ability for women to easily get together and form an alliance, it, it usually works quite well. There's been some examples, but uh, I think there's some counterexamples to that one, too. <laughs> oh, there are definitely counterexamples to that. It just seems like all women alliances that can get strong are more effective for longer periods of time than the equivalent all-male alliances. Yeah, I can really only think of one all-male alliance that stayed strong, and it was from a season that I didn't even watch. So, Africa? Was Africa? Did Lex, Ethan, and Tom? Tom? Yeah. But That's even then, they had though. a fourth, yeah, uh, their fourth was a woman. So so the flip side of this question is, what's the worst theme season they've ever done? Because there's been some bad ones. 
I'll, uh, John, you go first. Oh, I was going to yield the floor to Michelle and let her go first. Come on. And you, you let your guests go we first. We are such gentlemen. <laughs> he can go first. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, I'll give you some time to think about it then while I give you my answer. I never saw the Medallion of Power gimmick or the haves and have-nots gimmick seasons. I don't think Exile Island was such a bad twist until eventually everybody figured the game out with the Exile Island gimmick. So to me, it comes down to two different concepts, and it's Redemption Island or the Outcast Tribe back in Pearl Islands. And as much as I hate Redemption Island, and I really do... The Outcast Tribe thing, if it had actually resulted in a winner from the Outcast Tribe, I think might have been the worst possible twist that they could have done. Yeah, and what's actually instructive is, despite that, Pearl Islands is a pretty good season. And it was a fantastic season, and I, I love Sandra's win, and I, I love everything about that season, except for the Outcast Tribe thing, which wasn't clear to the players when they started the show. It just, it could have potentially derailed what ended up being an awesome season. Yeah, and now here we are talking about something that Michelle has no idea about other than maybe having heard about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that one usually is pointed to as the worst decision the show has ever made. I would say no, because the season overcame it. Um, Maybe just luckily they did. I think the worst theme that this show has ever done is the haves versus have-nots in VG. It's It was just a monumentally stupid idea in that one tribe gets this really cushy beach with lots of luxuries, like they're sleeping on pillows and in blankets, and they get food given to them, and the other tribe gets nothing. So uh, you neither of you have seen this season, but um, what do you think happened? I'm going to go out on a limb here. Did the haves fare well? <laughs> Yeah. Or was there a surprise? Was there a surprise twist in that the have-nots was just so desperate? No. So the haves thumped them mercilessly, and the ha- or sorry, the haves thumped the have-nots, and then the have-nots just became miserable people. And the the show thought they were going to be really clever, and they had this one twist where they gave the haves the chance to either keep immunity or give up immunity and keep their luxury. And because they weren't stupid and had already won, like, the first four or five immunities, they just gave up immunity. Because who cares if you're voting off one person? The reason why they were winning every week is because they had the stuff and the other tribe didn't. And then the have-nots eventually just devolved into cannibalism? Is that what I'm assuming happened? Uh, eventually a swap changed it up, and then those people that, you know, went on to the have-nots tribe started losing all the time because it wasn't that they were better than the other people. It's because they were fed and they were sleeping well. So Fiji is often ranked as one of the worst seasons in the history of the show. I have a bit of a soft spot for it because the second half when they were no longer doing have and have-nots when it was merged was actually really good. But the first half was nigh unwatchable. And speaking of nigh unwatchable, we can talk about the other worst season of all time. And this is the absolute worst season of all time, Nicaragua. Do you remember the theme of that season? Despite trying to purge it from my memory, I do. Michelle, do you remember? Yes. The the age thing is... Olds versus youngs. That's the problem with, with twists like the age twist and the have-have-nots. You know how it's going to go at the beginning. Yeah, and I think the show is always like, oh, no, it'll be surprising when it doesn't go that way. And then they look like idiots when it goes exactly the way they want. And what's even worse for something with old versus young is not only did it go predictably in that the young tribe dominated early, but they had to neuter the show in order to try and balance it out. Like, a lot of the challenges were things that, you know, young fit people didn't necessarily have an advantage for. So... Not only did it go exactly how you'd think it would go, it was not even interesting because the challenges were weaker. Yeah, Nicaragua just is by far the worst season. I don't even know that it was a gimmick entirely. Uh, it didn't help. It certainly did not help. Uh, do you have any other examples, or did we pretty much nail it? Well, Michelle, we, we left the, the easiest one <laughs> set up on a tee for you. You're just setting up Sarah Redemption Island, aren't you? You know what? This isn't fair. We're, we're, I think John just set you up there, and we haven't even asked. How, do, how are you feeling about Redemption Island? You're allowed to think differently than us. I think the awfulness of Redemption Island post-merge makes pre-merge Redemption Island seem not acceptable, but 
I'm almost like, okay, I'll take pre-merge Redemption Island if you just get rid of it at the merge. I feel like that would be a fair compromise. <laughs> it's like, yes, you can keep your love, your your favorite characters for a little bit longer as a safety net. But come on, anybody voted out post-merge? We've we've seen enough. Let them go. I like how our justification for this is basically, okay, fine, you can keep punching me, just not in the face. <laughs> Just not in yeah. the face. It's cool. Just we're just battered at this point, and we're just we've entered the bargaining phase. We realize not only is it not going anywhere this season, but clearly they're going to bring it back. So it's like, come, okay, 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 you can do it a little bit, but just a little bit. But I'll say I would watch ten Redemption Islands before I would ever watch a Haves versus Have Nots again. Oh wait, Haves versus Have Nots Redemption Island, starring the Hanses. <laughs> yes, the Hans family versus non-Hanses. Because I guess the, the probably the best way to wrap this whole discussion up on our interview segment with you is, what are you thinking about this year's theme? Are you digging the loved ones? It's adding a big new twist. Like, at first it was a bit, okay, where's this going to go? But it's going pretty well, and it does, I think the loved ones twist does make Redemption Island, well, made it in the beginning a little bit more bearable, because even though you know nobody's going to swap apart from Rupert, of course. Um, it still it adds a little extra to the strategy of who you're going to send there, and that at least makes it more interesting and means adds more layers to it. I like that your only exposure to Rupert, really, then, would have been heroes versus villains when he was, I have to say, his most insufferable. He really went after that heroes thing and just wrapped himself in the flag of heroism through that whole season, and it got pretty insufferable. Yeah, I assumed he was just always like that. No, he actually, in Pearl Islands, he wasn't that bad. He was really popular because he was actually a fairly endearing person, and with each season that he's come back, it's just gotten more and more like, okay, Rupert, we've had enough of you in our lives at this point. See, uh, actually, this could put the bow on our discussion. Rupert plays to theme so hard. So the first time around, it's a pirate theme, and he's all like, I'm a pirate, I'm going to steal the shoes, and oh, this is what a pirate would do. It's the Rupert impression. Uh, I've missed it so much. Yeah, I know, I got to break it one more time. Uh, and then in All-Stars, you know, whatever. Oh, I'm a, you got to listen to me, I'm an All-Star, I'm going to bury us in the sand. And then for Heroes vs. Villains, it's like, I'm the biggest hero. Oh, my heroism is even greater because I hurt my toe. <laughs> and then now, I, hurt my toe. I have to give up everything for my loved one. She's my blood. Which, come on, Rupert, if she was your blood, they would not have issued you that marriage license. Um, by the way, I, I don't really remember the I hurt my toe as his argument for heroism. <laughs> He, he he whined for a long time that he broke his toe on that season. He really did. That did go on. For- they should have given him the Survivor Purple Heart. Or is that not a, a medal that you guys have in your, what you call, military? <laughs> yeah, well, we don't get as uh, injured in the war as you guys do. Uh, but uh, you know what we should do? We should offer the Purple Rock Purple Heart. Oh, that was so corny. <laughs> okay, so thank you to Michelle a.k.a. something quirky, for coming on and giving us a little Australian flair this week. Thank you for having me. All hail the Queen. (laughs) That is what we say nightly. All right, so I hope you guys enjoyed that taste of Down Under there, and thanks again to Michelle. Like like we mentioned, we had to pre-record that. There's just too much of a time difference here. We couldn't pull that one off. This is our all-Aussie edition of the Purple Rock. Goodbye, mate. I think I think it's good day, Andy. Sorry, I only can do Rupert. You you don't have the ear for accents that I do. So anyway, as I was saying, you can uh if you guys wanna give us your opinion on what the best gimmick has been on this show or the worst gimmick, give us a voicemail, an email, and Twitter, whatever you want to hit us up at. If you want to do a voicemail, you can send one to us on Skype at JR Purple Rock. If you wanted to uh Leave us an email. It's purplerockpodcast at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is purplerockpod. And now we have a new way to follow us, and this uh, will be the way to follow us going forward. Uh, we are in the process of moving hosts for the podcast because we don't want to pay money for this sort of thing. Uh, and that is uh, Purple Rock Podcast on WordPress, which I don't know the full URL, but if you go to WordPress and look for Purple Rock Podcast, you find it. <laughs> it is purplerockpodcast.wordpress.com. I should have known that. It's pretty basic. But it's so it long, really so many characters. 
So many. So yeah, we're working out on how to get that switched over to iTunes. Uh, there was a bit of a hiccup this week when we shut down prematurely and then discovered that we have very little control over iTunes and they're very hard to control. But we'll get that done at the end of the month and we appreciate you continuing to listen to us. Yeah, all apologies for those of you that got some message from our podcast begging you for money. That wasn't us. That's an automatic thing happens. Who would ever pay for podcasts? I mean, come on. <laughs> I wouldn't know. But yeah, uh, thank you again for listening. Um, let's hope next week is far more exciting from a survivor standpoint. But I think with this episode, we've proven that we can make this exciting no matter what, even if we have to reach the ends of the earth to do so. I was going to point out that, you know, it may have been a boring episode, but it was certainly not a boring podcast, Andy. Never. <laughs> uh, so until next week, I remain the Canadian of the podcast. And I'm down under in America. And uh, we'll look forward to you listening to us again. 